During the last couple of months, we've talked at different times about the vastness of the Buddha's vision. His vision of the cycle of rebirth, the wandering over lifetimes through all the different realms of existence. He mentioned the vision of world systems in which there are so many planes of existence and infinite numbers of world systems and it just gets elaborated into this incredibly vast sense of what the universe is all about. He talks about tremendous immensities of time you know, of eons and kalpas and mahakalpas and it really staggers the imagination when we start thinking of this cycle of life and death over these immensities of time. Although we might have a tremendous confidence and a tremendous faith in the teachings of the Buddha, still for most of us, These things are outside of our direct experience. Most of us don't know through our own direct realization the truth of these. But there's another way of understanding the immensity and vastness of this spiritual journey, this path of Dharma practice, which is accessible to us. It's accessible to us just in the moment and in the course of our practice. And that is the exploration of the vastness of the nature of consciousness itself. It's a journey into the vastness of the mind. What is consciousness? What is the nature of consciousness? How does it work? How does it create all the worlds that we inhabit? How does mind create the world of our bodies, the physical world? How does mind create the world of our intellect, the world of our concepts, the world of our emotions? All of this is mind created, comes out of our consciousness. How does this happen? How does this tremendous mystery occur? Mind is this tremendously powerful energy which creates our reality. And our task is to understand how this is happening. So the Buddha said, and I think we have a sense of it from our own experience, that the mind can be our best friend and it can be our worst enemy. And we've all had a taste of that. I'd like to just read from one, from one of the suttas, from the Pali Canon. Because the Buddha talked of this so directly, so, so explicit. He said, No other thing do I know, O monks, that brings so much suffering as an undeveloped and uncultivated mind. An undeveloped and uncultivated mind brings suffering indeed. And no other thing do I know, O monks, that brings so much happiness 
as a developed and cultivated mind. A developed and cultivated mind brings happiness indeed. No other thing do I know, O monks, that brings so much harm as a mind that is untamed, unguarded, unprotected, and uncontrolled. Such a mind indeed brings harm. No other thing do I know, O monks, that brings so much benefit as a mind that is tamed, guarded, protected, and controlled. Such a mind indeed brings great benefit. It's all here. It's all arising out of the nature of the mind. When we understand it, it brings peace. When we don't understand it, it brings suffering. We can confirm this simply by observation, by looking in ourselves at our own experience. We can see all the ways the mind creates suffering. When we look at the nature of mental illness, what is that? What is happening in conditions of mental illness? We get caught up, or the mind gets caught up, in powerful thoughts and images and emotions, and so identified with that content. Sometimes these thoughts or images or emotions can be terribly frightening. And if we're so identified, so lost, so caught up in them, it's as if we have contracted into that hell realm. Tremendous suffering, tremendous illness of mind. There's no space in that mind. There's no, there's no freedom when there's that level of identification. And something also which the Buddha said, which resonates, I think, quite uh, easily with people who have practiced meditation, that the suffering of the mind is far greater than the suffering of the body. Now, because even when the body is enduring a lot of pain, it's still possible for the mind to stay clear, to stay alert, to stay balanced, to stay peaceful. But when we're caught up in a suffering of the mind and there's no space, there's no balance, the suffering can become tremendously overwhelming. So we need to see, we need to see how this happens in our minds, in our lives. We can see the suffering that can come from an untrained mind, an unguarded mind, in more ordinary deluded states. You know, maybe we're not at the extreme of what we might call mental illness, but just our ordinary delusion. When our mind, when we get caught up in obsessive thought loops, these tapes, they keep playing over and over again, and we can't, we can't extricate ourselves from them. But when we get caught or identified with a pattern of emotions that continually overwhelm us, this is a suffering. This is a mind-created suffering that we experience. We can see it in our addictions to certain actions. You know, where we go around and around repeatedly, 
performing the same actions over and over again, even when we know they're doing us harm or they're harming others. Where does this come from? It comes from our minds. We become imprisoned in another way. Now, in so many of the ordinary circumstances of our lives, in our ordinary interrelationships with people, sometimes I think of it as, as temporary insanity, temporary mental illness, not understanding how to let go of states like resentment or anger or hatred or jealousy. When we don't know how to let go of these and we're lost in them over and over again, it's like beating ourselves. We're inflicting suffering through not understanding. It's not so much a question of living a life so these states never arise. Maybe someday we'll be in that space where they don't arise. But it's not so much a question of that. It's a question of, can we understand the mind so deeply and so well that when they do arise, we know how to work with them. We know how to let go. So we're not imprisoned by them. We're not imprisoned by that self-created suffering. We see the suffering of mind in another way. Especially on retreat. This is a retreat phenomenon, which we've talked about you know, at different times. The yogi mind phenomena, Where just small things get blown up in tremendous proportion. I can't remember whether I mentioned the story to you of you know, one person on retreat, it was out west, who wrote to the managers wanting the managers to write to United Airlines to change the flight patterns because it was too noisy. <laughs> and I was just trying to imagine what this yogi was thinking when they wrote the note. You know, whether he thought that the airline really would change their <laughs> pattern to accommodate. <laughs> you know, uh, the window wars that takes place, or those heat wars or whatever, where we get so caught up you know, in some small thing, but it becomes our whole world. This is also a kind of mental disturbance. (laughs) (laughs) I've experienced a kind of mind-created suffering, also on retreat, uh, just in the, the situation with interviews. Because when I was first practicing with Upandita, I was terrified. And it was somehow, it's like my mind regressed to this four-year-old. You know, and every time I would have to go in for an interview, I'd be sitting out in the hall, really in a state of terror. What was going on? I still don't know what was going on. <laughs> but whatever, his presence, my projection, to somehow the mind created this world in which there was tremendous suffering until I finally got up enough courage to actually tell him that, that coming to see him was like going to the dentist and, <laughs> and worse. And, and somehow just the speaking of it dissolved it and got a lot easier after that. 
What's important to see in all of this is that we live in the worlds that our minds create. These are the worlds that we live in. And we need to see and understand how our minds are creating them. Now, in one way of speaking, we could say that our minds are making it all up. So the question is, what are we making up? And do we want to be living in those worlds? Are there alternatives? Are there other possibilities? Mind is also powerful in very positive ways. Just as it can be our worst enemy, it can be our best friend. The mind is an unfathomable realm of creativity. All creative expression comes out of the mind. All the power of the intellect is a power of the mind, of artistic expression. Where is this coming from? It's coming from the nature of the mind. All the things created of great beauty, every expression of kindness is coming from the mind, every expression of compassionate action. There are so many stories of women and men in the world who are truly courageous, who do amazing things in the face often of difficult or terrible or fearful circumstances, and yet there's some power of the mind, some courage of the heart that moves them. So this also is in the nature of the mind. It can be our best friend. All the paramis of Buddhahood come from the mind. This amazing faculty of knowing, of cognizance, is the nature of the mind. The ability to know anything. Awareness is the nature of the mind. So all of this is a reminder of one of the most fundamental teachings of the Buddha. It's the first line, the first verse of the Dhammapada, that mind is the forerunner of all things. We really need to get this very deeply, to see it very deeply, because when we do, then we come back home. We're not looking out there for an understanding of how things work. We look actually to the source of it all. And the source of it is in ourselves. As we observe all of these appearances, all of these conditions, all of these states and qualities that arise, both the skillful ones and the unskillful ones, we learn some very fundamental things. And you've been seeing this directly over these past months. We begin to see directly 
both the conditioned and impermanent nature of all phenomena. We see that everything is arising out of conditions. Nothing has inherent self-existence. You know, in the example we've used before, but it's such a, it's such a telling example you know, of a rainbow. A rainbow is not an existing thing. It's an appearance arising out of conditions. Certain conditions of light and moisture come together and there's an appearance of a rainbow. Certain conditions come together, there's an appearance of anger, there's an appearance of compassion, there's an appearance of different sensations. So we begin to see, we notice how everything in our experience is both conditioned, not existing in itself, both conditioned and impermanent. It's all momentary. Usually, when we reflect on impermanence, we do it from one perspective. That is, we do it from the perspective of understanding that because things are impermanent, they are inherently unsatisfying. That we can't find satisfaction, we can't find completion, we can't find a sense of fulfillment in something that in its very nature is passing away. And we see that. How many, how many wonderful experiences, wonderful thoughts, wonderful feelings have we had? They're not here. They're gone. So what that we've had them? They're nice in the moment, but there's nothing really there. So through the seeing of impermanence, we see the basic unsatisfying nature of all kinds of experience. It all goes. There is nothing reliable. There's nothing lasting. There's nothing worth holding on to. That's how we usually see it, how we reflect on impermanence. But there's another side to impermanence which I think needs at least some airspace, airtime. And that is, it's precisely because things are changing and are impermanent that we have the potential to become Buddha. Now, if things weren't changing, if things weren't impermanent, this would be it. <laughs> that might not be such good news. It's precisely because nothing is static and nothing is fixed and things are conditional and impermanent. When we understand this, then it's tremendously empowering for us. It enables us to actually let go of what causes suffering and to cultivate those states that bring us happiness, that bring us freedom. When we understand deeply, really from seeing it, the basic laws of conditionality, of what leads to what, of how this becomes the condition for this, when we see that, then it frees us to make choices. We actually can begin to make choices in our lives. 
we can begin to create our lives rather than simply have them play themselves out. When we know how to do this, when we know how to fashion our lives, we can come to places in ourselves of a very genuine happiness and peace. We can do this, and this is what the Buddha is talking about. There's one tremendously important and fundamental understanding about the nature of mind. And that is that the nature of mind is inherently pure. Consciousness, the nature of consciousness is pure. What is consciousness? We've talked about this, you know, at different times. Consciousness is that which knows. But it's not knowing in the sense of knowledge. It's not using the word knowing in that way. It's not knowing in the sense of accumulated knowledge. You know, that as we grow older, we know more and more things. It's not that. Consciousness is the knowing of spontaneous awareness. You know, a baby, a young baby, hears a sound. There is that spontaneous presence of awareness. Baby doesn't have to know anything by way of knowledge. There's that spontaneous arising of awareness. This is what we mean by consciousness, the knowing faculty. This awareness, the nature of the awareness, is pure. What does it know? What does awareness know? And as I speak about it, about this, it would be useful, I think, not only to listen to the words theoretically, or on the concept level, but in the very moment of listening to be experiencing the nature of awareness because it's happening naturally all the time. So the words can really point to the direct experience right now of how it's all happening. What does awareness know? What does consciousness know? There's awareness of sounds, there's awareness of sight, of smell. All these things are known. All of the sense doors, all of the thoughts, all of emotions, all memories, past lives, future lives, whatever. The nature of awareness is simply to know arising appearances. And it also knows all of those factors which arise together with consciousness. Greed, hatred, love, compassion, mindfulness. All of these are qualities which arise together with the mind. They can be known by awareness. 
Awareness knows all the armies of Mara. All of the hindrances are known by awareness. The awareness is pure. It's simply knowing. The awareness is not tainted. Unless we get caught, unless we get identified. Consciousness is simple awareness. This fundamental purity of mind is described in many traditions. It's the power of cognizance. The Buddha described it in one of the Pali Suttas. He said, the mind, O bhikkhus, is radiant, is shining, is glowing forth. but it becomes stained by the kalesas, the defilements which have visited it. The mind, O bhikkhus, is radiant, shining, and glowing forth, and from the uprooting of the kalesas which visited, it is freed. Now, it's interesting just to notice what is it that keeps us from recognizing the shining, radiant, glowing forth nature of the mind. If this is its nature, the nature of awareness, can we drop back into the recognition of it? This is from the Song of Mahamudra, one of the Tibetan texts. The essence of mind is like space. Therefore, there is nothing which it does not encompass. Just think for a moment of awareness like space, there is nothing which is outside the realm of awareness. There is nothing which it does not encompass. The clouds that wander through the sky have no roots, no home, nor do the distinctive thoughts floating through the mind. This is one of the most striking images to me. Isn't it strange just to think of even saying, the clouds that wander through the sky have no roots. When you think of what that would look like. (laughs) You know, clouds wandering through the sky and all of a sudden roots drop down to hold them. The image is ludicrous. And yet it's what we're doing all the time. The clouds that wander through the sky have no roots, no home. Nor do the distinctive thoughts floating through the mind. But somehow, we've gotten into the habit of with most thoughts which come floating through the mind, we root them. And it's just like that. It's like (laughs) these tendrils come down. And this this is the process of identification with them. We take them to be who we are. The nature of the mind, which has the capacity to know and to be aware of everything, is empty and clear. As with the sky above, its emptiness and clarity have been inseparable from the very beginning. This is the nature of the mind, of awareness, right now. This is not something we attain. This is its nature. We hear a sound, we see a sight, we feel a sensation, aware of a thought. 
the nature of the mind is simple awareness. Awareness like the sky. Empty and clear. So there are two important understandings here. The first is that awareness or consciousness itself is pure. The second is that it is conditioned, the awareness is conditioned or colored by various appearances, various thoughts and feelings and moods and emotions. And if we lose sight of the essential clarity and emptiness of the mind, then we get identified with these appearances, we get lost in them, and then we suffer. That's how we get lost in the mind-created world. I'd like to read something from Ajahn Chah, who's on this wonderful Thai meditation master. He calls it a taste of freedom. About this mind, in truth, it isn't really anything. It's just a phenomenon. Within itself, it is already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. And then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful. Really peaceful. It is just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering of mind is due to these sense impressions. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we are unconcerned. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Our practice is simply to see this original mind. To see, to recognize, to realize the nature of awareness. The question which arises, how can we abide in this natural purity of mind? How can we abide in what we might call our true nature? One way 
is to clearly recognize the nature of awareness and come back to it again and again. We see it, we understand it, we experience just this clear, simple, lucid awareness, knowing, knowing of a sight, a sound, a smell, as you sit here, aware of the words, aware of the sound, aware of what you see. The awareness is pure. It simply is knowing. Coming back again and again to the simple, natural awareness of mind. We practice abiding in it, allowing all appearances to arise and pass away, not deceived by them, not deceived by our emotions, not deceived by the moods, not deceived by pleasant and unpleasant. It's all just empty phenomena arising and passing. Second way of training ourselves to abide in this natural purity is being mindful of each arising appearance so that we don't get lost, so we don't become identified. This is what the Buddha called taming the wild monkey. And as you well know, our minds are like a wild monkey because we do get pulled out over and over again. We do get deceived into all of these appearances, objects, phenomena. One of the great insights, understandings that you have all had and it really should not be underestimated, is seeing directly for yourself how fickle the mind is. You know, because if you went up to people on the street, does your mind wander? Oh, no. My mind doesn't wander. (laughs) People have no idea what their minds are doing. Because... Nobody has ever suggested that they look at them. (laughs) It's just a process of acting out, of being totally lost. And so what we have all seen, you know, in these months and years of practice, we are seeing the fickle nature of the mind, of how easily it gets lost. This is a very important wisdom to have about ourselves. Sometimes when people see this, they think it's a problem. The seeing of it is not a problem. The seeing of it is a genuine wisdom. Because it shows us very directly and without any doubt at all what needs to be done. And this gives a tremendous and deep sense of direction in our lives. And it's not because anybody tells us this. It's because we see for ourselves how our minds are behaving. This is not only a group of people in 20th century America. This is the nature of the mind. It was nature in the Buddhist time. A wise person 
This is from the Dhammapada. A wise person should pay attention to the mind, which is difficult to perceive. It is extremely subtle and wanders wherever it pleases. One who keeps a rein on the wandering mind, which strays far and wide, bodiless, will be freed from the tyranny of Mara. I really like that image because it's so accurate. The bodiless wandering of the mind. Now the body's here. We're sitting here. The mind is off. One who keeps a rein on the wandering mind doesn't get lost, doesn't become distracted in it. Doesn't mean the thoughts don't arise, but we train ourselves to remain undistracted. That person is freed from the tyranny of Mara, the tyranny of suffering. So our practice could be seen as a gradual process of stabilizing awareness. And we can see how this is happening in different sittings. Now in some sittings, sit down and the mind is clear and it's undistracted. And we really have a stable kind of attention. And in other sittings we sit down and we're gone. For 10 minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour at a time. We're just lost in the mind-created worlds. But what has been interesting to me over many years of practice is that our ability to stabilize awareness, to remain undistracted, actually does grow. When I first began sitting, I had studied philosophy at college, and my mind was incessantly thinking. I would sit down, and I remember my first years in India, I would just sit and think the whole time. I got up, oh, that was a good sitting, (laughs) because it went fast, and I didn't feel much of what was going on in my body. So I have not been one of these people, you know, there, there are some very few people who kind of have a natural samadhi, they sit down, they've got it. Well, I wasn't one of them. But looking back over all these years of practice and all the work that I've put in, I have been amazed to discover that this actually works. You know? <laughs> we can do this. And I really, I have this tremendous faith and tremendous confidence because I know that if I could do it, anybody could do it, knowing how my mind was. So this really does happen. We begin to abide more and more in this natural purity, natural clarity of mind. It doesn't mean, of course, that we never get lost, we never get distracted, but there's more a sense of this natural awareness being home base. It becomes easier for us both to rest in it and to come back to it. This is a description of the, um, one could say, progress on the path 
from the Song of Mahamudra. It says, at first, at first yogis feel their minds tumbling like a waterfall. In mid-course, like the Ganges, it flows on slow and gentle. And in the end, it is like a great vast ocean. Now, in, the, in the beginning, our minds are tumbling like waterfalls and a lot of agitation, a lot of turbulence. But as we continue, in mid-course, begins to flow on smooth and gentle, like the Ganges. And then in the end, no boundaries, like the great vast ocean. Now something happens as we begin to settle into this flow of awareness, this current of awareness. That is that we, we develop a very heightened mindfulness of the kalesas, of the defilements. We begin to see them arising more and more clearly. And because of that, it really seems like they're increasing. And you've probably had that experience here where it just seems like all of the hindrances, all of, all of the negative states just seem to be coming uh, stronger and stronger. On a clean cloth, stains are very obvious. They stand out, they jump out. On a dirty cloth, the stains are hidden. And that's exactly what happens in the practice. As we develop more clarity, as we develop more peace, more awareness, the hindrances, the kalesas, the defilements, it's not that they're becoming more, we are seeing them. We're seeing them more clearly. Why is this important? Why would we want to see them more clearly? It goes back to that second important insight about the nature of the mind. The first is that awareness is inherently pure. The second is that the kalesas, the defilements, are not inherent. They are visitors to the mind. This is very important. Because as we understand this, not understand it theoretically, as we see it for ourselves, the visiting nature of all the hindrances, of all the galaxies, of all the armies of Mara, when we see that they are not intrinsic to the mind, this wisdom undercuts the tremendous amount of self-judgment that we are noted for. Now, our minds have this tendency to judge ourselves for the arising of the hindrances because of a misunderstanding. We're taking them to be who we are, and they're not who we are. They're visitors. Now, it's as if somebody comes to our door visitor comes to the door, we can invite them in or not. That's up to us. We don't need to judge ourselves for the fact that they come. That's not our doing. They're just arising. Do we invite them in? 
what do we show them the door the problem is that we are so in the habit of inviting them in and we're in this habit because we don't recognize them clearly now they come up, all these hindrances, these defilements, these galaces arise of greed and hatred and jealousy and all of these, they arise in the mind and if we're not really mindful of them, if we don't recognize them, by habit, we identify with them, they come in, they make themselves at home. Recognition, clear recognition, is the key for not identifying with them. So by way of helping you recognize them, the Buddha proceeded to list them. So I'd like to read you the list of visiting defilements. It's very helpful, you know, because when we see them, oh, that's greed, oh, that's hatred, and when we recognize them, in the clarity of that awareness, we're not getting lost, we're not getting identified with them. They don't come in. Okay, and what monks are the defilements of the mind? Covetousness and unrighteous greed are a defilement of mind. Ill will is a defilement of the mind. Anger is a defilement of the mind. What does defilement mean in this sense? It means that which causes suffering. Hostility. Denigration of others. Domineering. Are defilements of mind. Envy. Jealousy. Hypocrisy. Fraud. Are defilements of mind. They cause suffering. Obstinacy, presumption, conceit, arrogance, vanity, negligence are defilements of mind. So we need to see this. We need to recognize it. If we don't see and we don't recognize, they arise because of certain conditions. We don't see it. We identify with it. They've settled down for a while. Okay, so from understanding the nature of mind, the nature of consciousness, the nature of awareness as being inherently pure, this purity is not something we create. It is the nature of awareness. And understanding that defilements, all those things which cause suffering, are visitors and only have power if we identify with them. From these understandings, we learn to practice two important qualities. And these are the, these qualities are really the, the flavors of our meditation practice. And that is the qualities of effort and surrender. And at first glance, they seem 
opposed to one another. But actually they're not. They really are two sides of the same thing. Now in Pali, the word for effort is virya. And I've been looking for another or an expanded translation of this word virya. Because in English, effort often gets translated in our mind to mean efforting, which is not so useful. The word virya in Pali, it means the quality of energy. It means the quality of strength. How the mind is when it is strong. It's the opposite of sloth and torpor. This has a very special, very special meaning, which is, which is really quite different than the limited sense of effort. So when you, when you think of effort, it's really to think of it in terms of energy, of strength, of interest. It's all of those components. Why is this quality of virya, of energy, important in our lives, of effort, of strength? It's important because it is a necessary component for creating the conditions for whatever we want to accomplish in our lives. Without it, things don't happen. If we don't bring energy to a situation in a certain way, things just get played out habitually. Worldly happiness is the kind of happiness that ordinary people want in the world takes a certain kind of virya, takes a certain kind of effort or energy or strength. That is, it's the application of energy for practicing dana, for practicing generosity. This brings happiness. But we need to do it. We need to actually do it. The practice of sila, the practice of non-harming, the practice of morality brings happiness. If we go around harming ourselves or others, we are not going to be happy in our lives. This takes a certain kind of effort or energy. We need to do it. We need to accomplish it. It's a training. It's a practice. It's a cultivation. The happiness of calm. Not only the the kinds of worldly happiness, the happiness of a calm mind takes virya. That is the effort or the energy or the decision, the resoluteness to keep bringing the mind back to the object. Not giving up, continually beginning again. The happiness of insight takes energy. The happiness of wisdom takes energy. That is the energy to be mindful, the energy of investigation, the energy to recognize the kalesis. It's easy to read a list. Can we actually arouse the energy to recognize them as they arise in our minds, not simply be overwhelmed by them, not be deceived by them? All of these different states arise, takes energy, it takes that quality of strength, of willingness. Let me see this. Let me recognize. Let me investigate it. 
It takes a certain quality of energy to recognize the nature of awareness itself. Because without it, we get lost in the dream. We get lost in the appearances. We get deceived. So this is a tremendously important quality on the spiritual path. And the Buddha spoke of virya more often than any other quality. But this quality of virya can also get out of balance. Because when it's out of balance, or when we misunderstand it, when it becomes efforting, it can lead to a kind of striving, to a kind of ambition, to expectation in the mind. And as you well know by now, Striving, ambition, expectation is a setup for suffering. Because they don't get fulfilled, then we get disappointed and discouraged and depressed, and so we make less effort, there's less energy, and it's a spiral downward. When virya gets out of balance, and it leads to this kind of expectation or striving or ambition, it's really reinforcing the sense of self, the sense of I of someone doing something. So this is a great delicacy in the practice. And it really is a sign of a spiritual maturity where we recognize the essential need for arousing energy to awaken and we know how to keep it in balance. And a lot of what we learn here, and what I've seen over all the years of my practice, is exactly this balancing of virya, of right effort, of coming to understand it. The way we balance it, or one way of balancing it, is to understand the power of surrender. Because surrender is precisely the other side, it's not doing. Surrender is the quality of opening to what's there, of accepting what's there. It's that quality of settling back into the moment. But it's interesting in English because surrender has such such a range of connotation. Surrender doesn't mean, in this sense, it doesn't mean giving in to something. And it doesn't mean identifying with it. It means openness, acceptance, mindful awareness. When there's virya, that quality of strength, of the energy, and this surrender, then our meditation practice becomes the perfect balance of receptivity and insight. I'd like to read you something from one of the greatest of the Tibetan meditation masters who died recently. His name is Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. He was known uh, he was known as the Great Ocean he was massive of body but his presence was his presence was just like this like limitless ocean which just embraced everything he 
was, he was recognized by, by all the schools as being really a, a very great master. And these are his teachings on the nature of the mind. And it expresses very clearly just this balance. Like waves, all the activities of this life have rolled endlessly on. Yet they have left us empty-handed. Myriads of thoughts have run through our minds. But all they have done is increase our confusion and dissatisfaction. Normally we operate under the deluded assumption that everything has some sort of true, substantial reality. But when we look more carefully, we find that the phenomenal world is like a rainbow, vivid and colorful, but without any tangible existence. When a rainbow appears, we see many beautiful colors, yet a rainbow is not something we can clothe ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be so enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly as they have been doing throughout countless past lives. To gain control over the mind, we need to be vigilant, constantly examining all our thoughts, words, and actions. To cut through the mind's clinging, it is important to understand that all appearances are void, like the appearance of water in a mirage. Beautiful forms are of no benefit to the mind. Nor can ugly forms harm it in any way. Sever the ties of hope and fear, attraction and repulsion, and remain in equanimity in the understanding that all phenomena are nothing more than the projections of your own mind. To realize that appearance and voidness are one it is, is what is called simplicity. To realize that appearance and voidness, appearance and emptiness are one is what is called simplicity or freedom from conceptual limitations.
There is nothing more important in our lives than understanding and recognizing the true nature of our minds. Because it is out of our minds that we create our world. It can be our best friend, it can be our worst enemy. Also, Kensi Rinpoche, as long as you fail to recognize the true value of human existence, you will just fritter your life away in futile activity and distraction. When life comes all too soon to its inevitable end, you will not have achieved anything worthwhile at all. But once you really see the unique opportunity that human life can bring, you will definitely direct your energy into reaping its true worth by putting the Dharma into practice. This is what we're doing here. This is what we value. This is what our commitment is. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.